Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hi guys, I'm so excited today to welcome Jessica Pinn to our podcast. She's going to tell us her amazing story. She's an author and advocate and publishes frequently on her Instagram account. You can find her at Jessica Ann Pinn. And she's so passionate about the education equality in regards to genital anatomy between the sexes. Her goal is to have equitable coverage of the clitoris in medical literature to prevent harm. So she's had studies published. She's just had an amazing journey. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, when I was barely 18, I had a labiaplasty and I did it because when I was 17, I was actually just looking for information about my genitals because I had only had sex ed in sixth grade and I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't even know what a clitoris was, right? And I had heard people talking about the clitoris. I didn't know what it was. So I went to look it up. You know, I Googled, where is my clitoris? And then I saw, you know, vulva and I was like, what's a vulva? And then I'm like, well, what's all this other, like what's going on basically? And I Googled labia minora and a bunch of uh, like before and after photos of labiaplasty came up and labiaplasty surgeons' websites came up. That was the first thing that came up pretty much when I searched labia minora. And, you know, one problem that I talk about on my Instagram and elsewhere is how, you know, doctors are publishing that <laughs> protruding labia minora are considered unfeminine and embarrassing. This is just not even true. But as a teenager, I thought that doctors were authorities I could trust. And so when they said protruding labia minora are considered unfeminine and embarrassing and are caused by excess androgens, which are male hormones basically, and caused by aging. That's not true. They're also not caused by excess androgens. That's not true either. But doctors still publish this in medical literature and it was online. And so I believed it. I thought, oh gosh, I have a really embarrassing problem. And I also read that there was no, there were no risks to sexual function. I even checked, you know, the outcome studies that had been published at the time. And I thought that I would be safe. And I, yeah, I, I had a labiaplasty and my dad, who's a plastic surgeon, chose an OBGYN because OBGYN, he assumed OBGYNs would know the anatomy better than plastic surgeons. He knew plastic, he didn't think that his colleagues who were doing labiaplasty at the time had any idea what they were doing because he knew that that had not been part of his training. So what happened is my labia minora were completely amputated and the nerves of my clitoris were injured in a clitoral head reduction that was done without my consent. And I lost sensation and I didn't really know why. And I thought it was my fault. And it took me a really long time to get answers. But basically, you know, as I became more sexually active and aware, I figured out you know, what had happened and it took me a while, (laughs) but I think that's common. I think a lot of women who have been harmed in these procedures have trouble defining what happened to them. I think a lot of them blame themselves. You can see 
there's one woman on Reddit who said she feels like it's her punishment for not just accepting herself as is. And yeah, so I think that these sort of feelings that, oh, it's my fault because I chose this happen. But, you know, I did not choose what happened to me. What happened to me is just outside any realm of reasonable possibility. If there, you know, it, like a separate surgery was performed without my consent. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for completely amputating anyone's labia menorah. Yet I am told by experts in labiaplasty that this happens all the time because there are no training standards. And a lot of surgeons just do these because they look easy. Um, right. So how did you go from that? And thank you so much for sharing that story. Like, I think a lot of women who listen are going to resonate with that and, and really feel connected to your, your passion and your purpose. How did you go from the trauma of that to kind of the advocacy work that you're doing now? Well, I had a really hard time dealing with what happened to me. And, you know, I had to ask myself what I would need in order to be okay. It would just distract me all the time. Like I would just randomly get super upset. You know, like when I was in college, it would distract me from studying. I, it would keep me up at night, you know, because it would be like, how did this happen to me? Why, like, how will I live with this? You know, and probably everyone who goes through some serious trauma or loss has asked themselves that question. And for me, the answer was I wanted, you know, I wanted acknowledgement of what happened to me and I wanted something done to protect other people. I needed some kind of justice. And I guess, you know, early on, I wanted to sue my doctor, but I was past the two-year statute of limitations. And my dad talked to a plaintiff's attorney and they didn't think I'd sort a chance getting past the two-year statute of limitations. And then, you know, I didn't know that I could report my doctor. And then after I did know, I just kept putting it off because I was afraid. Because you know, both my dad and my psychiatrist thought the board would blame me and take my doctor's side. And I just, there were all, you know, the people in, it's, you know, I hate to say anything negative, but, you know, the people in my life who I had to talk to about it, like my parents and therapists, were not particularly supportive. I think everyone was really uncomfortable with the topic which is something that's very normal for me now. Like I talk about vulvas at the time, but you know, I'm from Dallas, Texas. Um, my mom is pretty conservative, I think, you know, and now my mom is comfortable and supportive. But back then it was like, she didn't want me talking about it. One of the first things she said to me when I told her what happened is not to involve, she just said, I told you not to do that and don't involve your father, even though, you know, I was barely 18. I was in high school <laughs> when this happened. And she also said, your sexual function is not your OBGYN's business. It definitely is. And so I just felt sort of invalidated and afraid. And I was afraid to stand up because, you know, like now I take it a lot less personally. But at first, if anyone didn't take what happened to me seriously, it was like, it meant I was worthless. It's really hard to explain, but I think it's why, you know, people get afraid to talk about their traumas because of how people might, might react. There's something called secondary wounding, which happens and it can be more damaging than the trauma itself sometimes. Like 
And secondary wounding is when people say that didn't happen or that's not that bad or, you know, you're making mountains out of molehills. And these are all things that I heard early on. Like at first I wasn't believed. And then, you know, I, I was told I was making mountains out of molehills. I was asked what the big deal was. I was asked, why do you need justice? And so all these things sort of added up to me being afraid to report. And also, you know, my dad originally was afraid for me because he thought I would just get torn apart because my dad is an older doctor and he had had really bad experiences trying to report things to the Texas Medical Board in the past. Um, and so he just... He was scared for me, I think. Mm -hmm. His original idea, I think also, you know, he works with my doctor. And originally he thought I needed to give my doctor the opportunity to respond to me. And so I wrote a letter to my doctor and that went very, very badly. You know, my doctor lied about what he did and, and blamed me in the same letter. <laughs> so, you know, like he denied, he said he stayed far away from my clitoral hood and frenulum. Probably not everyone knows what the frenulum is, but it's like the part that connects the clitoris to the labium nora. And it's very involved in sex. It's very sensitive. It's very important to sexual function. And he cut that. And you can see that it's been cut. And he, he also reduced my clitoral hood without my consent. There are visible scars from my clitoral hood. Um, but he said he stayed far away from my clitoral hood and frenulum. And so... You know, that made me really crazy because I had at least assumed that he knew what he did or, you know, I, and, you know, maybe he's just lying, but you know, this letter was really triggering for me at the time that was in 2010. I ended up getting suicidal, you know, which is why it's like, I don't know if any doctors listen to this podcast, but it is so, so important to just acknowledge when you make mistakes. And especially if, you're beyond the two-year statute of limitations. You're not really at risk for getting sued. And like, I just, most, you know, research has shown that saying sorry and acknowledging an error actually makes it less likely that patients will sue because most patients, they don't want to go through that process. They usually just want acknowledgement and they want something done about it. And so that's what I wanted. And what happened was I was afraid to report and I didn't get the courage to report until after they passed a new law. So I kept, I kept putting it off because there was no deadline. So I just, it was like, I'll do it. I'm a procrastinator. I get afraid to do things sometimes and I just put them off. And so I put it off and I thought I would wait until I was in a better place. And so that just continued until one day I went to report and I found out they had passed a new law and I'd missed it by two weeks. I'd missed the new statute of limitations. So then I had to find a new way. And so I thought, you know, if I could, you know, address the systemic problems that I had seen that, you know, I would get the same, you know, gratification from that. And, you know, I had dug into literature and just seen how the anatomy was not covered in female genital cosmetic surgery literature. It just sort of disregarded it as if, you know, our genitals are just like cutting paper. You know, there are plastic surgeons who advertise these surgeries as like a haircut for your genitals, but it's like, this is functioning tissue. And it's, it's, so the literature has gotten a little better, but definitely back then it was like approached as if it was non-functional. 
Where did you go to find the actual, I mean, if there's so much misinformation out there, how did you know when you actually came across the accurate literature or who did you find to kind of help you on that journey? As far as misinformation, like the claims I was talking about before, as far as, you know, caused by excess androgens and whatnot. I mean, it's really simple. Just if any claim is made in medical literature, you have to look for the evidence that it's true. And if the evidence, if you cannot trace it back to any evidence, it's not true. (laughs) It's it's really good advice. Yeah. So, for example, the claim that large labium are caused by excess androgens comes from a hypothesis made in a case study. And it's been cited 67 times. And most, most of those times are in reference to that study as support that labial hypertrophy is caused by excess androgen. But it's literally just a case study where the doctors say, we think that this is the cause, but there's no, that's not evidence. And there's like, all they know is the patient took androgenic medication as a child and had large labia minora as an adult. For all we know, the androgens could have suppressed the development of her labia minora. It's ridiculous. Also, as far as the anatomy, I mean, the anatomy was pretty much just missing. And so for me, it was like, I just wanted to know like what, I mean, honestly, when I, when I first started, this is really embarrassing, but part of the problem was when I was 18, I consented to a labiaplasty and I did not know what a clitoral hood was. So I didn't, I was, I had no ability to be like, Oh, a surgery was done without my consent. And so I feel very concerned about that with a lot of patients because Clitoral hood surgery is basically clitoral surgery. <laughs> and so it's like, and if you don't know the difference, then I just wonder how many patients are basically getting clitoral surgery without their consent, because that's what happened to me. And sometimes when I read about women losing sensation with labiaplasty and I see doctors saying that's not possible, I'm like, well, does this patient even really know what was, is that all that was done? And there's even one picture on real self where the patient says I had a labiaplasty and then she, she shows the picture and there she had a clitoral hood reduction too. She's just calling it a labiaplasty. You can see stitches. Anyway, so I didn't really understand. And then, you know, later on, you know, so everything I was doing was like Googling, like, you know, what can happen after labiaplasty or, you know, it's, and when I went to my doctor, she said, well, your, your clitoris is at the top, so it couldn't have affected that. That was kind of a stupid response because labia minora do play a role in sexual function and mine were completely removed. The one thing very disturbing to me is I look like, so like I hate when people are, well, I look very abnormal. I look like someone who has been mutilated. And I would like doctors to maybe sometimes ask me how I'm doing, you know, because it's, you know, I just have this obvious situation. I think that if doctors see a patient who has clearly been harmed, clearly visibly been harmed, like say something. And in 16 years, no doctor has ever said anything to me without me bringing it up. Wow. I mean, I think you bring up the point of two points. Number one, just how to deal compassionately with somebody, right? Regardless of the situation. And then number two, the challenges of even doing that when most doctors don't get adequate anatomy, female pelvic anatomy education. So they might not even know that something is abnormal because they didn't get that education. But regardless, still the compassion piece can still be there. 
Yeah. But I mean, this is pretty simple. I mean, like, honestly, like a tech CEO had the sense to notice that my labia minora had been amputated and asked me if I was okay. Pretty obvious. Like you don't even have to be a doctor. You can just like have some common sense to pay attention. Like, I mean, knowing just the external anatomy is not very difficult. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I know sometimes when I talk like this, it pisses people off, but this is really easy. Everyone should have labia minora. Sometimes they can be very, very small, but there'll still be that basic structure there. You won't see like, you know, a clear, you won't see the frenulum, like the frenulum cut off. There's two stuffs. It will never be like that. It'll be connected down. And it won't just, there won't just be like, a visible scar line, like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. what would you say? What would you say are like the biggest, if, if an average person just decided to Google clitoral and, you know, labia anatomy, what are some of the biggest misconceptions? You know, we've already talked about a lot of them, like number one, that the labia isn't involved in sexual function. That's a myth. What would you say like are some myths that are kind of pervasive on the internet when people try to, or even like you, how you were like a younger woman who never had adequate sex ed in school, what are the myths that people are going to find when they look on the internet? And how would you, how would you kind of clarify that for us? Well, last night I was on TikTok and I saw some comments about roast beef and some people still think that the lady menorah get bigger with sexual activity. And this is even published in medical literature. Like doctors say this, they say it can be caused by sexual activity and masturbation. This is not true. There is no evidence at all. It actually comes from the 19th century. It come, there's just this history of discomfort with female sexuality. That's where this comes from because the vulva is basically the female penis. This is what gives women pleasure, but it's not involved in reproduction. And so there's been this historical taboo surrounding it. And, you know, in the 19th century, they thought that if women had large lady admit they had excessive sexual desire and they saw it as a sign of nymphomania. And they used to remove the labia minora and the clitoris as treatment because female sexual desire, too much female sexual desire was seen as pathological. And it's all about discomfort with female sexuality. I mean, this is just all about like controlling women and patriarchy. And it, like it ultimately comes from the same kind of cultural reasons behind female genital mutilation, right? Today, you know, many parts of Africa, they're still trying to suppress and control female sexuality. And that's where labia shaming comes from. So for the same reason that in some parts of Africa, they consider it unfeminine to have a clitoris, right? That's why they're cutting them off. That's, that's where this comes from. It's, mm-hmm. it, and it, it's like, it's just extremely sex negative. Labia are our functional tissue. There's nothing wrong with women being sexual. There's also just not really any evidence that it's considered ugly. So one thing is plastic surgeons will say the aesthetic ideal is for labia minora to not protrude. This isn't actually supported. In fact, in one study, they found that labia minora that protruded slightly were considered the most attractive. I mean, it's true that labia minora that consider that protruded only slightly were found to be considered more attractive than labia minora that protruded a lot. But they were also found to be more attractive than labia minora that didn't show at all, which is the aesthetic that is advertised by these surgeons. The other thing is about half of women have labia minora that protrude. According to the Gynodiversity Project, it's even more than half. It's very normal 
I think it's probably more common and there's no evidence of this, but I think it's probably more common in thin women. I know for me, I have had a very small labia majora. So there's just nowhere for them to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some women have much bigger labia majora. I know like with my cadaver dissections, like some of the women had just like giant labia majora. So they had plenty of room for everything to be hidden. So Tell me about tell me about that. How did you get the opportunity to do anatomy dissections and learn that way? I pushed my dad <laughs> because I was trying to get an OBGYN to do a study. And I guess so. I didn't. I guess I wasn't reading my emails carefully enough to realize. Well, this one OBGYN she said maybe I, I can do a study, but it wasn't like a yes. I definitely will do a study. So I thought that I was failing to get OBGYNs to publish anything. And also I thought I needed credibility because I was having so much trouble. But can I please finish with the misinformation? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So labia minora are not caused by sexual activity. They're not caused by masturbation. They are not caused by male hormones. They are also not caused by aging, at least not according to any evidence. Labia minora are reflective of estrogen levels. They actually decrease in size with menopause. So it's the opposite of what many women think. They might sometimes get stretched out with pregnancy, but no correlation has been found in studies. However, you know, there are anecdotes where women feel like their labia minora have gotten bigger, but it's it's not actually supported by evidence. So, and there have been multiple studies now of labia minora size, which is really great because back in 2004, there was no modern research on labia minora size. And all I found was some really bad data from the 19th century that led me to believe like two centimeters was in the 93rd percentile. But, you know, this one modern study showed that two centimeters is actually average. And so like, that's a big difference <laughs> as far as where I would have lied on the spectrum. So I thought, oh gosh, you know, if because mine were longer than two centimeters. And so I thought, you know, I had a really bad problem. They are not. And so anyway, there's all these TikTok videos I was going through last night. And it's just so sad because so many young women are insecure and teenagers are the most insecure. Like, so at that age, they're at the highest risk. Most teenagers don't figure out how to get their parents to pay for their labioplasties. But, you know, if they're definitely like studies have shown that they are, they have the most insecurities at that age. And I think this is a really big problem. And I think that it's sad. And I think that, you know, it's interfering with sexual health because a lot of young women, I realize a lot of young women like in their early twenties are not, are afraid to have sex because they're worried about what their partner will think. And it's just really sad. Like, I I think it also affects women's sexual function from a psychological point of view. They've shown that negative general self-image affects sexual function. Mm -hmm. And so that's why a lot of these labioplasty surgeons have said that labioplasty improves sexual function. (laughs) Basically, I mean, this might sound bad, but in my opinion, labioplasty surgeons are causing the problem or they're very, I mean, I had no insecurities until I saw what doctors published which I thought I could believe they're creating the insecurity and then they're solving the insecurity they create. That's it. 
And so that's why they're causing the sexual dysfunction and then they're solving it. But this is psychologically based and it is better addressed. Except in extreme cases, it is better addressed with education. Largely, Viamonora are not actually considered ugly. One thing that I believed also, and I still see it talked about, and it bugs me, is, you know, women talk about they're only being small labia menorah in porn. And a couple of porn stars have called bullshit on this, like Stoya, who is, you know, very feminist and involved in sex education, and Nina Hartley have said, this is total bullshit. There are all types of labia menorah in porn. They're not considered less attractive. Porn studios are not just like turning away women because they don't have the right vulva. That's not happening. It's just that some, you know, having especially large labia menorah isn't necessarily that common. So maybe they're not as common, but like there's one porn star who is popular because she has large labia menorah. That's like the thing. And you know, one thing that was really sad is when I was a teenager and I was looking this up, I was sort of raised, I, I had like such ne- sex negative ideas that when I was looking up like whether lady, large lady menorah are considered a bad thing, you know, I saw all these negative associations and negativity from doctors who I saw as authority. And then the only positive comments I saw about large lady menorah were from men who said, oh my God, I want to eat that. Like, you know, and it was very explicit. And back then I wasn't comfortable with any kind of explicit language. Um, And it actually made me feel worse, which is really sad because, you know, there's nothing wrong with sex. And, you know, yeah, basically larger women are are not, there's just not good evidence that larger lady women are considered less attractive. And there are plenty of porn stars who have bigger labia menorah. And you can get on porn sites and look at the comment section. It's not like people are hating on them. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I never did that. I did not watch porn as a teen. I know. So one thing is I wrote a core answer where I went over porn stars who have bigger labia menorah. And I know that it's helped people, even though it's kind of like in, in a, I guess it's kind of a provocative way to approach, to approach it. But you know, they always say there are only small labia that are important. And when you say that, you're endorsing the idea that it's better. But it's like, no, no. They, they, a lot of the time, I mean, there's a wide variety. Also, so there are these soft, soft porn magazines like Playboy that haven't shown labia menorah. There was actually a study of you know, how female genitals were shown in Playboy. And they, they didn't often show, they found that Playboy did not often show labia menorah protruding. But they also, I think a majority of the time, had the genitals obscured. Like they'll be like turned or, you know, something will be blocking it. And so the general idea was that basically it's not, about like, oh, this is ugly so much as, oh, this is too explicit, you know? And it's kind of like the same idea. It's like maybe like women want to see men with their shirts off and looking sexy, but maybe like having a dick out would be a bit much sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's kind of the reason behind it. It's not because it's ugly so much as just minimizing explicit, like keeping it. It's like this kind of thing is happening because people are prudes, right? Like in Australia, they, the law made it so the labia menorah could not be showing for a while. 
And so that's just kind of like, oh no, don't show us this. Like, yeah. not because it's ugly, just because. And then it's, it's like, tough. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's tough to, to have good knowledge out there when everything's banned, right? Like, you know, to, to say, well, if we can't see any of it, then how can we, how can we learn? Yeah, it's kind of like, you know what it's kind of like? is like, imagine if people all thought that nipples were ugly just because we don't show them. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it doesn't mean they're ugly. Just, we're just hiding them most of the time, right? Right. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on. Well, tell me, tell me on the, uh, if people, if women are interested, I mean, you're, you have so much knowledge, you have so much passion. Tell me if women are interested in this advocacy, how can they help you? How can they follow you? Oh, well, I'm on Instagram at Jessica Ann Penn. I made a new Twitter called Mediclit. I always like help and feedback and advice, you know, like recently my father and I sent letters out to all the OBGYN or all the top OBGYN residency program directors and a couple followers helped us write it better. We have not gotten any responses, but yeah, I guess just like following helps. One thing that really helps is these artists who have created art to show the anatomy. It just, I mean, it really helps educate like anatomy more detailed than was shown in OBGYN literature until last year has been liked and shared on Instagram, I think probably over a hundred thousand times. Wow. The Volva Gallery, her illustrations got about twenty five thousand likes just on her illustrations because she has so many followers. And so she showed a cross section of the clitoris, which I don't think was in any medical textbook at all until 2019. And now it's on her Instagram page with her five hundred thousand followers. And that's just a really big deal because there's so much exposure. And this means that like, you know, so I'm struggling to get doctors educated, but like there is so much potential for social media to be a venue for spreading information. And this information is spreading and like women are learning about their bodies. And it's, that's been really exciting to seeing like how many women are interested and how many like large Instagram accounts have shared illustrations. Stephanie Grubel has been the most helpful because her illustrations are just incredible. And I reached out to her when I was having trouble with my illustrator. And I, you know, I asked her if she could do better. And she, cause it, I just, I went back and forth with him for weeks. It would be so exasperating. And she has drawn these really great um, these really great illustrations and they're on my Instagram. And then there's this other woman, I forget what her name is, but she's behind this account called Clit Worship and she's made these 3D models and she's even so she got mad at me because I it's a long story, but she felt like I was like maybe being too critical, like with when she didn't do things quite right or like I was kinda walking her around and you know I'm not paying her. So she got frustrated. But she's been doing all this work since she stopped communicating with me. Like she has continued to create jewelry with clitorises. She has made, a, she has 3D printed a cross section of the clitoris and she's like put it on a stand. I need to check her Instagram because it is just incredible. She's made a quiz online to test people on parts of like parts of the clitoris, like de anatomic detail that most 
OBGYNs and urologists don't know, right? Like this is incredible that she's doing this and she's just like an engineer. You know? That's so cool. That's yeah. so awesome. So, and there's another woman who, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she's always so nice. She has two accounts. One is Volva Painter and one is Women Inspire Art. And she will make, you know, just random. It's a little bit more abstract, but she also shows the anatomy. So she's shown like, it would actually be really cool. Like her, her art is something that I could like put on my wall. And I don't think people would really know what it is, but it would still be the anatomy. You know, cause she made this abstract painting that has like a cross section of the clitoris in it and has like, um, you know, the clitoris from a couple angles. It's just, it's basically clitoris art, but it's abstract enough. And then many different color, like turquoise and pink. So it's not. That's so cool. Yeah. I love it. Well, for the last couple of minutes that we have, any final thoughts or words that you definitely want both doctors and women in general to hear? One thing is a lot of doctors have told me medicine changes slowly. It doesn't need to change slowly. Information can disseminate quickly. It doesn't take a lot of effort. I mean, there's so much potential with you know social media to share information very, very rapidly. There's also, you know, there are these professional organizations that really do have the power to dictate what OBGYNs learn, you know, if they are simply appealed to and convinced. Yeah, medicine doesn't have to change slowly. And I think that attitude that it just does and it, it, it's sort of unnecessary. It's so important for medicine to learn from mistakes and to evolve and So what I've seen and what's been so demoralizing is the way that women continue to be harmed for the same reason. It's been 16 years since my surgery. And just from a really, on a bigger level, like this medicine shouldn't work like that. Like when someone gets hurt, you know, people should figure out why and then they should do something to change it so that other people aren't hurt in the same way. And the reason why is because patients' lives are important you know, I'm important and I'm important enough that my harm is worth learning from. And when it is learned from, it's an acknowledgement of my value and an acknowledgement that I did not deserve to be treated, to be harmed and to be treated how I was treated. And, you know, other women like me don't deserve that either. And so when you share the anatomy and help change things you're like honoring victims and you're just it's just important to learn and to improve things that's so beautiful your story is so amazing i definitely want i'm seeing like a round two at some point because i think there's going to be a lot of conversation that just comes from this podcast airing and you know so much more talking about the future and what else we can do so thank you so much for meeting with me today